Well, if you'll do me a favor and turn to the most important verse in the Bible. As I come today, I'd like to uh, bring you the greetings of a true McConnell University. Uh, yesterday, if you can see, I'm a little uh, sunburned. We uh, moved in our new freshman class, the largest we've had. Uh, some of you are going, wait a minute, you got it wrong. Isn't it true McConnell College? No, actually, we're now a university. Uh, we've graduated our first master's students. We have a, uh, a set of five more master's programs coming online this year and next year. A lot of exciting things happening in the mountains of North Georgia. I also bring you greetings from uh, First Baptist Church Cleveland, where my wife and I are members. Uh, they uh, uh, today are, are gathering and worshiping our Lord and Savior, just as we are here. In the classic movie, um, Princess Bride, who, who here has never seen Princess Bride? Okay, we have a few. Uh, it's a great comedy. Uh, the, the title is Princess Bride because the author of the book wanted to write a book for his daughters. And so he asked them, what do you want me to write about? And one of them said, I want you to write about a princess. And the other one said, I want you to write about a bride. And so he wrote about a princess bride. Uh, we find ourselves where one of the characters, Inigo Montoya, uh, finds himself drunken in a bar. They're trying to get him to move, and he basically makes this comment, I'm not moving. Vizzini said, when things go wrong, we go back to the beginning. And this is the beginning. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't often take advice from drunken people in a bar who are in the revenge business, okay? <laughs> but I think there's something that we might want to listen to here in the words of Ignigo. Who would say, and be honest with me, who would say that you think that in today's culture, something has gone wrong? I would. I mean, I look at what's happening in politics, I look at what's happening in our culture, I look at the divorce rate, I look at everything that's going on, I'm going, something has gone wrong. Well, if something's gone wrong, let's go back to the beginning. Now, some of you, when I said turn to the most important verse in the Bible, you went, okay, Mael, which one? Well, Genesis 1.1. Uh, this morning and tonight, we'll be spending time in the first two chapters of Genesis. And hopefully, I will make the argument to you that the beginning of Scripture is essential for our Christian walk. It's essential for who we are as believers. Now, if you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, uh, one of the things I teach my students in hermeneutics, I, I, I tell them, you've got to look at a passage and you got to tell me in a couple words the essence of the passage. Well, if you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the essence of the passage is what? God created. Right? Everything else goes under that understanding that God created. But we might ask ourselves today, don't we know better nowadays? I mean, don't we have massive scientific data that tells us that we should know better, that God didn't actually create things, things happen because of evolution. So I ask myself the question, do we? Do we know better? Are we at a time in our culture where we think we know better than our creator? 
about what happened to us. Now, I'm an aerospace engineer and I'm a theologian. Uh, the two fields aren't that quite, quite that different. I'm not a biochemist. I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Uh, and so I, I'm going to walk very carefully over the next couple of slides uh, because as an engineer, I usually cringe when a pastor makes a scientific or mathematical analysis. Okay? I'm always going, oh boy, there we go again. And so I don't want to do the same thing as we're talking about biochemistry and biology because that's not my field of expertise. But I can tell you I worked in a research lab. I did research for uh, the Naval Research Office, for NASA, for DARPA. So I do have some understanding about how the scientific field and research world goes. And so the question is, do we know any better? Well, on the next slide, you'll see uh, a, a bacteria with a flagellum. And I want to introduce you to the concept of irreducible complexity. Now, before we go and look at this beautiful molecular rotary engine, and that's how I slip in, because as the engineer, I know about rotary engines. Uh, before we look at that, let's look at something more simple. Okay, kids, what is this? Mousetrap, right? Very simple. Concept is very simple. I put bait. I have a nice little spring. I have a little trigger mechanism. I have a support. I have uh, a place where I put my bait. And when the mouse comes, it snaps. Only five working parts to this, right? Now, let me ask you a question, okay? If I get rid of the spring, is this going to work? No, without the spring, it's not going to work. If I get rid of the lever, is it going to work? No. If I get rid of the base plate on which it's on, is it going to work? No. This is what we call something that is irreducibly complex. Unless you have all five parts, mousetrap doesn't work. Now, some might say, well, it could work as a, as a typing, right? Nice fashion statement. <laughs> but it's not going to work as a mousetrap. Absolutely not going to work as a mousetrap. It is an irreducible complex system. Now, some of you have some experience in probability. In probability, the probability of one thing happening is whatever the odds are. But the probability of two things happening is what? The first probability times the second probability. So if I have a probability of something that it's one in a thousand, then the probability of two things happening that are one in a thousand, it's one in a thousand times one in a thousand. That's now one in a million. Three one in a billion, one in a trillion for four, one in a quadrillion for five. So if the probability of any of these components happening by chance is just one in a thousand, which is actually pretty good odds. I mean, that's better than the lottery. And some of you are playing the lottery, so. You know, the problem with the lottery is the odds of you winning the lottery are very little. So why do people play? Because the odds of someone winning the lottery Oh, well, actually, not that bad. But it's not going to be you, okay? So just don't waste your money. <laughs> so the probability of this complex system happening is actually very, very high. Because now you're raising by the power of five the probability of any of this happening by itself. 
And so let me show you at the molecular level. Here you have a, a nice bacteria with a flagella. If you've ever seen the movies, these things can, can turn on a dime. It can go from reverse to 100,000 RPMs just like that. Scientists are amazed at looking at this molecular engine because we can't build something like that. There is some perfection associated with it. And it's got 40 plus component associated with it. Works very much so like a motor. One of the premier scientists that has studied them would even say, it looks like this has been designed. He would then deny that he meant that there's a designer behind it, but that's okay. And when we look at it, we ask ourselves the question, if one piece is missing, is it going to work? No. It's irreducible complex. So evolution tells us that something happened by chance. And because it was useful for me, I became some creature that had an evolutionary advantage. And therefore, I kept that because I was able to procreate better, and that trait passes on. Right? So, supposedly, the giraffe starts having longer and longer and longer necks because they can eat more that way. But the problem is, at the molecular level, that's not going to happen. At the molecular level, now you have to have over 40 components happening at the right time, in the right sequence, in the right place, all at once, for that to have any usefulness to you. If any of those is missing, it's absolutely useless. That makes you think there's more here than just chance. There's more here than just, oh, well, it just happened. It's too perfect, too precise for it to happen. Now, some of you might have seen the, the Nova special that tried to debunk this, and in it they showed that uh, oh, on, the, on the left you have a flagellum, on the right uh, you actually have the injection mechanism used by bacteria uh, that spread the bubonic plague. And guess what? They look fairly similar, at least in the, in the conceptual drawings that were prepared. Uh, by the people at Nova, they look fairly similar. A uh, couple issues, though, that they didn't mention in the Nova special. Uh, this uh, type 3 secretion system is actually missing 30 more proteins to make it become a flagellum. So, yeah, they look similar, but it's still missing 30 pieces. Not only that, but once it has the 30 pieces, it's still missing the mechanism that triggers what makes it go, meaning the, 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 the signal at the molecular level, the chemical level, that actually permits this flagella to start turning, stop turning, go reverse. And so, yes, can we find something that's similar and say, oh, look, just like my mousetrap, hey, it can be a cl tie cl clasp, right? Yeah, we could possibly have this mousetrap missing two components be a, a tie pin. But then I still have to have two components to make it a mousetrap. And the odds of one coming are low, but the odds of two are even lower. And so we look at the created world around us, huh? and we go, you know what? 
there must be something more here. So when you ask the question, do we know any better nowadays, I would say, well, the secular scientific community, and, and I'm very careful with those words because I still consider myself part of the scientific community. But the reality is, and I had some friends uh, when I worked at a research lab at Georgia Tech who used to say this, they're atheists, and they said, you know, what bothers me about the modern atheist community is that atheism for them is a religion. Atheist for them is a moral conviction that they're defending just as much as you may all defend Christianity. It's not just about the data. And so when we say, do we know any better nowadays? I say no. I say the verdict is still out, if nothing else, because the creation-evolution debate is actually not a scientific debate. It's a historical debate. It's something that happened, however short or long ago, where none of us were there, and unless somebody invents a time machine, none of us will ever be there. So even if you can show me, and they haven't, by the way, but even if you can show me scientifically that you can go from nothing to today's creation, you can't show me that that's how it happened. And Occam's razor tells us that the simplest solution is the most likely solution. And guess what? A creator is the simplest solution. When I talk about the fact that this has become a religion, uh, about a decade ago, a movie came out called Expelled. Uh, it showed how the secular scientific community was actually uh, <clears throat> persecuting, I guess we could use that term, the creationist scientific community. Uh, it, it looked and interviewed a bunch of different scientists that lost their jobs at very reputable institutions because they held to a creation perspective, not because their research was false. As a matter of fact, uh, let me give you just one example. Bill Dembski, who now is not as much involved in the intelligent design movement, but Bill Dembski, every time you write somebody criticizing Bill Dembski, they would say, oh, no, he's a great mathematician. We can't touch his math. He's a great philosopher. We can't touch his philosophy but we're still going to disagree with him. So they didn't disagree with their method. They didn't disagree with their work. They just disagreed with the concepts. And, and in that movie, they really showed that these people were being ostracized for the single belief that they believed there was a creator. And what was fascinating to me is at the end of it, they're interviewing one of these scientists, or one could almost say pseudoscientist, and, and they, they present him the idea of irreducible complexity of a designer, and this person was more willing to accept the fact that aliens from Mars came and modified the human DNA to produce who we are today than a creator. I mean, he looked at the evidence and said, yeah, yeah, but there's some evidence that there's a designer, but there's probably some alien. Why? I mean, Seti is still out trying to find the aliens, okay? We have no proof for them. And yet that's where they'd rather go. That's why I say it's become a religion nowadays. So do we know better nowadays? I don't think so. And some of you say, well, but 
Okay, Mayo, what about theistic evolution? What about the idea that God could have used evolution to create? Well, from a grammatical perspective, a linguistic perspective, is a problem. By definition, evolution is using, is using random processes to come up with a result. If God used it, they're not random anymore, okay? So, so a theistic evolution, by definition, is an oxymoron. But on top of that, uh, Bill Dembski, again, um, and, uh, and one of his colleagues at Baylor University, before Baylor got rid of Bill uh, because of his position, actually ran a very interesting study. Now, one of the things we can't do with evolution is figure out, can it happen? And the reason we can't do that is because, based on its tenets, it's going to take millions and millions of years, and we just don't have millions and millions of years to get the answer. But Bill thought, well, what about if we computationally do it, and then with the computer we speed up the clock? Now we can model it. Now, now we have a potential of modeling what happened in the evolutionary scale. And so they, they programmed a totally random process, which is what evolution says, right? Nothing happened. So they thought, well, okay. So let me tweak it a little bit more. They tweaked it a little bit more. Nothing happened. And they kept on tweaking and tweaking. Something happened. The problem is they had to tweak with it. The problem is it required a designer. It required somebody to tweak with the system for it to happen. And so, again, when you come to the concept of theistic evolution, I just don't see it. And so some of you are going to say, okay, okay, so you, you've made okay argument about there's questions, a historical, uh, so, so maybe not. But after all, Scripture is literature, isn't it? Don't we have poetry in Scripture? Don't we have apocalyptic language in Scripture? So can't Genesis just be mythical? Can't Genesis be something that tells me a myth from which I can learn some lessons? Well, here's the problem. If we look at the structure of the book of Genesis, the structure in and of itself has literary units. Meaning that the author, Moses, and I stand with Moses. There's many out there who say it's not Moses, but Jesus said it was Moses, so that's good enough for me. Uh, the author of Moses, we laugh at that, but that's the reality, right? If we say it's not Moses, then we say Jesus lied. And that's a big of an issue for me, okay? But when Moses wrote Genesis, he actually structured it. He was uh, inspired by God. God is a, a very competent writer. And we see uh, this word toledoth, this is the account, or this is the book of generation, in multiple places in the book of Genesis. And this literary uh, term creates literary units that help us understand that this narrative has a historical uh, progression to it. So because of how it's structured, it's not a structure that you would have in a mythological book. It's a structure that talks about narrative. Yeah, narrative and story. However, it's presented as factual accounts. And so we have this larger structure in the whole book of Genesis. And then in the first couple chapters, we have these smaller literary subunits introduced by the term God created. And we'll look at those in detail in a minute. God created in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1.21, 1, 1.27, 2.3. 
telling us again that there is a structure, there's an understanding there that these are actual facts, historical facts. And then on top of that, you have uh, the division of days, these section breaks. Um, Jeremy Lyon will be here at 5. He's going to have a, a fascinating uh, presentation of a linguistic argument for God. Please don't miss it. This is great stuff. Uh, but he recently uh, wrote an article looking at the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Genesis account. And then he shows that the scribes in Qumran actually put... The, the way they copied the text had markers in it that separated the text in days. You know, it was a big question we'll get to in a second. Is there a gap between Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3? And he says, based on what he sees in the ancient manuscripts, nobody ever assumed that. Day 1 get from verse one, went from verse 1 to verse 5. And so we have a structure here that tells us that when Moses was looking at this, he wasn't thinking mythological. But then some of you might say, well, but Maya, listen. There's creation myths everywhere, right? As a matter of fact, uh, this uh, Emul Elish, this Assyrian creation epic, there's some scholars who will tell you that it, it was uh, because of this creation epic, uh, epic that uh, the book of Genesis was written to counteract the, the call to Morduk, and to say that Elohim, Yahweh, was a better God. Okay? I don't think we have proof of that. Uh, what we do have is an 18th to 16th century B.C. story uh, discovered in 1849 in uh, Mansul, Iraq, which is modern-day Nineveh. And, and this narrative tells us about Morduk's victory over Tiamat, now, if I'll read you a little bit, you'll see some of the parallels. When in the heights heaven was not named, the earth beneath did not yet appear a name. The primeval Apsu, who begat them, and Chaos Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters were mingled together, and no field was formed, no marsh was to be seen. Well, yeah, I see water, I see things not formed, I see heaven, I see earth. There are some components here that are parallel to what I see in Genesis. And by the way, if you look at some Greek or Hindu or Chinese creation myths, very similar in, in many respects. But let me ask you a question. If, and I say if just for the sake of argument, if creation actually happened the way Genesis described it, by the way, there's a flood accounts from a variety of different cultures. Uh, there are a Tower of Babel accounts from a variety of different cultures. If these things actually happen and people observe them, doesn't it make sense that we have multiple stories of the same thing with the same detail? I mean, if there's a bunch of eyewitnesses, guess what? Stories are going to be a little bit different, but they're all going to tell us something similar. So it makes sense to me to have multiple creation accounts if creation actually happened. Now, if creation doesn't happen, then it doesn't make any sense to me why we have multiple accounts that all sound the same. And in some ways, I think this is what Paul was telling us in the book of Romans. Right? If we go to Romans 1.18... Uh, Paul talks about, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so Paul precisely says that, that we have seen clearly God and his power and his creation, yet we as humans have perverted it. Why? Well, because if there is a creator, then we are creatures, and we have to answer to our creator. And guess what? We don't want to do that, do we? And so throughout history, humanity has refused to do that. And, and if you look at these other creation narratives we found, both in Assyrian, Babylonian, Chinese, Hindu, you will see that while some of the facts are similar, the bottom line concept of who God is is different. Right? They recognize the history, but they don't want to recognize the creator. And so... We look at it and we go, okay, probably not a given, right? Uh, probably not a myth. And so what does God tell us about creation in it of itself? Well, he says it happened in the beginning. Now, some would want to translate when God created, not in the beginning, uh, if you look at Hamilton uh, in uh, his New International Commentary of the Old Testament, he does a good job dealing with that. I don't have time to deal with that right now. Uh, but I do want to give you a kind of like crash Hebrew course for a second to introduce something you might have never thought about. Okay? Bereshit Baha Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Bereshit is a ber, and then the reshit. Ber is a preposition, could mean in, by, with, Rashid, well, often in Genesis, means in the beginning, like in Genesis 10.10. But in Genesis 49.3, that same term is firstborn son. So is it possible that not only did God create it in the beginning, but grammatically I can actually translate that by the firstborn son, God created which, by the way, is what we hear in John 1, 1, right? John, in his gospel, tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So not only did God do it in the beginning, but he did it through the agency of the Son. Colossians 1 also presents this perspective, he is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We heard that a little bit earlier. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Notice how Paul brings in the Genesis terminology to tie himself to the creation account. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And here's the problem. If we admit there's a creator, we are the created, and therefore we have to answer to him. And again, people don't want to do that. And then he continues, and he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I wish I had more time to kind of 
work on this passage, but we have here a chiastic, a chiastic structure. And the, the, you ever seen uh, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? He's in class and he's saying, and X never, ever marks the spot. And then the next scene, he finds an X on the ground. That's where he digs, right? Uh, that's what the chiastic structure is. It's an X, and the middle of the X marks the spot. The middle of the X of this passage is not that Jesus created, by the way. The middle of the X is that uh, he holds all things together. That means that at the molecular level, you are here as a being because Jesus is holding you together. And the point of the passage goes way beyond that because if you look at beyond the, the beginning of the passage, it talks about salvation. What Paul is saying is, you see that God right there? The one who created all things, the one who holds you together? If anybody can save you, it's him. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. Again, bringing it back to Genesis. right? He's trying to make a point for the validity of the gospel. And where does he go? He goes to the beginning. The beginning is essential for who we are as believers. And so God created in the beginning. This tells us also that uh, because he's the one who created in the beginning, there's this concept of the preexistence of God. Genesis doesn't mention God being created or coming to existence. He just is. Yahweh, the, the name for God, means to be. Right? He is the one that, that was, is, and will be. The one that has no beginning or no end. He is the one that created. But we have Bereshit bara Elohim. Wait a minute. Mayo, that's the plural. Eloi is God. Elohim is God's. So why are we translating it? God. Well, some would say this is a royal we. Right? We're, we're giving God the respect that he is due just like people did in the Middle Ages, by using the third person from that perspective. Some people have said that, uh, oh, well, this is God and the heavenly hosts, right? When God said, let us create men, he's talking to someone, so he must have been talking to the angels, except he said, let us create men in our image, and we're not creating the image of angels. And so the, the more likely answer here is that we have here central to the beginning to the creation account a trinitarian narrative not only do we see the father in the beginning or through the son god created and then we'll see the spirit hovering but we have this understanding that it is god in trinity who created and you say well why is that important well guess what there's a lot of other main world religions out there who would disagree with a Trinitarian understanding of God. So if Genesis is right, then that tells us something about the validity of Scripture. And then he created ex nihilo, fancy Latin word by saying out of nothing. Now this is the, 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 the usual story, right? The scientists got to a point where they said, hey, uh, God, we figured out how to create everything. So we don't need you anymore. Which, by the way, historically, that's what happened. Historically, if you look at human culture, humanity has needed God for a minimum of three things. Health, food, and an understanding of origin. You come to the uh, uh, industrial revolution, agrarian revolution, 
Now all of a sudden, we are producing so much food, we don't really need God for food. We have made so many advances in medicine, we don't really need God for health. And then Darwin comes on the scene. And now, the people that didn't want to deal with God to begin with say, hey, we don't need God for origin. And so you have these scientists, they go up to God and say, we don't need you anymore, we know how to do this. And God said, okay, show me. And so they bend down, take a big ball of dust, and God says, uh, make your own dust. <laughs> because he started out of nothing. He had to make the dust. Not only that, but we also see him creating in total another fancy Latin phrase by saying everything. He created the heavens and the earth. He's a creator of everything that is. As you continue for the account of Genesis 1, and unfortunately, wish I had, we had more time, but uh, so we have God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have here this understanding almost of the Spirit, uh, this idea of keeping in check and under control. God is in control for every step of the Genesis account. And God said, let there be light, and there is light. Do you, do you realize the power of words? How did God create? He spoke things into existence. I mean, if we had time, there's all sorts of psychological perils we can have here in counseling. There's a power associated with the word of God. Not just to transform lives, but to bring things out of nothing. Now, I don't have time to go through step by step, and some of you are going, ha ha, wait, wait, you, you mentioned light. Stop right there because I have a problem. He created the light, and then in day four, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. Genesis just proved itself wrong. Did it? Have you ever read the, the end? Now, we're talking about the beginning, right? Have you ever read the end, Revelation 22, 5? We are now in the new heaven, a new earth, and we have God sitting there, and it says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. God is light. And so when he creates the light, he didn't need the stars. He didn't need the sun. He didn't need the moon. Now, on day four, he creates these heavenly luminaries that take over, if you want, to produce the light for us. But it's not an issue and an error in Genesis. It's just that God himself created the photons. And those photons traveled. I mean, if he can create matter out of nothing, he can create a photon out of nothing, okay? And then we have this numberings of the days of creation. I know there's a variety of different ways of looking at it. <clears throat> uh, I'm an unapologetic young earth. I know there's people that are not, and I'm not here to argue either way. But I do want you to, to pay attention at least to the details and, and look at it. Uh, it says day and night. It says 
evening and morning? There is an understanding here that this is a 24-hour period. Not only that, but the whole concept of the Sabbath in uh, the Jewish faith is based on a 24-hour understanding. And more importantly to me, the idea that um, sin enters the world after creation is something we have to deal with, but we won't go into those details today. We come to day five, and I know I'm going long, but be patient with me. We're almost there. Genesis is building a crescendo. God created verse 1-1. Next time we see God being said that he creates is verse 121, and we ask ourselves the question, hasn't he been creating already for four days? Yes, he has. But what happens on day five? He creates life. Not vegetation. Animal life. And then we see God saying God created again on day six. And what happens on day six? He creates man. See, the, the, Moses, as he structured Genesis, he's telling us there is a crescendo here. Pause. Pay attention. There's something special happening here. Life is special. That's the theme of the entire scripture. And actually, we'll talk a lot more about this tonight if you come back. Because if you think about it, what does slavery, human trafficking, the sex industry, abortion, and evolution have in common? They devalue life, yes. Right, slavery says life is something that can be bought or sold. Pornography in the sex industry says, well, life is something that I can use for my own pleasure. Abortion says life has no worth. After all, it's just a ball of chemicals. And evolution says, you were a big chemical mistake. I mean, be honest, come on. Evolution says we're here because some mistake happened at some point and we happen to gain from it. All of it devalues life, whereas Genesis says what? Life is special. Twice, days five, day six, it underlines life is special. And we find ourselves in day six, and there's this kind of contemplation of God. God is looking at everything around. He's contemplating his creation, and he says, let us make man into our image. Humanity is the culmination of God's creation. Now, before you get a big head... Culmination of God's creation comes with responsibility. We are here to take care of God's creation. But humanity is created in Mago Dei in the image of God. Lots to stay here. We'll talk more about it tonight. And he's created male and female. I'll just say this as a teaser for tonight. Some people would want to have us believe that Scripture is misogynistic, that Scripture puts down women, puts them in an inferior role. One of the things I'll show you tonight based on the concept of helpmate, but also based on the cultural concept, Scripture actually elevates women to a role and to an importance that in that culture they would never 
have had. Matthew, genealogy of Jesus has four women. What? Who cares about women in a genealogy back in those times? The first people who saw the empty tombs are women. What? Who cares about that in that culture? Where scripture cares about that because men and women are both created in God's image. Men and women have the same value in the eyes of God. Different roles, yes, but the same value, the same importance. As a matter of fact, this terminology, men and women, comes out throughout scripture, and Paul brings it up as he talks about the gospel. Right? There's neither male nor female. Not that gender disappears, as they'd like to tell us today. He's not doing a, a preemptive transgender conversation. But he's saying, in the eyes of God, when it comes to salvation, there's no difference between the two. We have goodness in God's creation. Genesis tells moral evil is not the creation of God. No evil was laid in the world by God's hand. Evil is laid in the world, if you want to be honest, because God gave us a choice. That's how evil came in. We've got day seven, the Sabbath. We'll skip over that for the sake of time. And we'll get to my last question for you today. Why is it so important? Why do we need to go back to the beginning? Ultimately, if Genesis is false, then as a scientist, I cannot believe the rest of Scripture. And I don't say that lightly, I don't say that flippantly. If there's one issue with one part of the text... What makes you say that John 3.16 doesn't have an issue with it? There is the validity of the creation narrative is essential for our understanding of Scripture as a whole. When I was here last time, we talked about the validity of the text and the assurance that the text is a solid text and has been copied correctly, so on and so forth. We don't have to capitulate just because somebody out there says, well, I think I have another explanation, doesn't mean the text is wrong. That's what they did at the turn of the century when Darwinism came on the scene. And by the way, microevolution, we see it all the time. No problem whatsoever. Macroevolution, we have yet to see that. National Geographic got themselves in a pickle years ago because they ran to the press because they thought they found the final fossil that showed a transition between a reptile and a bird. And then they had to take it back because it was two animals, one on top of the other. That's how sold they are to evolutionary biology that they, National Geographic, very reputable magazine, did not check its sources well enough. So the entirety of the text is ever valid or not valid because there's nothing in the text that tells us what's valid and what's not. We ever buy the whole message of Scripture or we get rid of the whole message of Scripture. Not only this, but the text shows us that evil is not part of God's creation. That is an important message for us today. 
because that means that evil is not something I can blame on somebody else. Evil is not something that I can say, well, I'm not going to believe in God because he allows bad things to happen to good people. Guess what? That's not what he intended it to be. That's what we made it. And as a loving father, God sometimes helps us by allowing us to live out the consequences of our mistakes. But most importantly today, why do we go back to the beginning? Because if there's a creator, then we are his creatures. And so if you are his creatures, you know, Paul, time and time again, as he introduces his letters, he says, I, Paul, a slave for Christ. Well, if he's a slave, then it means he has a master. And slaves have to listen to their masters. So let me talk to the believers here today. You have a master. You have a creator. You have somebody who loves you, who holds you together. Are you listening to him? Are you listening to what he has called you to do in your life? Because you know what? If you look at your life and you go, everything's going wrong, let me suggest, go back to the beginning. Go back to that day where you told Jesus, I will follow you as Savior and Lord, go back to that day where you were submerged in those water to symbolize the fact that you came from death to life. Today, it's never too late to go back to him and say, Father, I want to follow you. As David would say, restore the joy of my salvation. But for some of you, you don't know this Jesus. For some of you, you wouldn't mind knowing this Jesus, but you've been told somewhere, somewhen, that you can't ask questions. I'm here to tell you God is God is big enough. He will answer your questions. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to recognize that you have a master that loves you. Today is the day where you recognize that you're not a chemical mistake, but you were produced for purpose and for a reason. And that God wants you to walk and live in that purpose and in that reason. Sin has entered the world, has corrupted everything around you, but God wants to restore you wants to restore you to a right relationship with him. Whatever what God tells you to do today, don't wait. We're not assured tomorrow, but more importantly, you're missing on a blessing of following your creator. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for all you do for us. We thank you that you did not leave us alone. You left us your word to help us answer some of these tough questions in life. And Father, we do ask that today you would work in our hearts, that we would be transformed. 
whether it is because we have rejected you or we have put you aside in our lives or whether it is because we have never known you. I pray your spirit would work in our hearts and break us that we might know you and glorify you. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ we pray. Amen.